Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to spreading awareness about issues that usually get swept under the rug. I'm your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy, and this episode is brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki. Today's guest is Scott Inman, a name you probably haven't heard before, but that doesn't make his story any less remarkable. Life hasn't been easy for Scott. Losing his dad at the age of 10 was only the beginning. With their mother facing mental illness, Scott and his sisters were neglected, in and out of foster care, and left to fend for themselves at a very young age. A disability has made life even harder on Scott. And despite his journey being marked with sadness and tragedy, he holds a positive attitude, largely thanks to his wife, Krista. This is a story of defying the odds. We begin with Scott's childhood. My dad passed away when I was 10. My mother really didn't care what I did. So I was free to do whatever. You know, I would go to um, Disneyland by myself, not very fun by myself. As long as I came home, she didn't care. It got to the point where, you know, I had all this anger and frustration and no one to talk about it with. So I set a few uh, boats on fire. And for a few years, I was in the probation side of the system. Once I got out of that, they put me in with my mother and... Way before all this happened, when my father was alive, my mother had a brain tumor removed. And after my father passed, he kind of showed signs of really not caring and just doing her own thing. Did her personality change due to her sickness? It did. After I got out of the probation part of the system, they put me back home my mother and my mom was getting social security benefits from both of my sisters and herself. And basically, only thing my mom really paid was her rent and nothing else. You know, me and my younger sister, who was three years younger than me, three and a half years younger, we were basically forced to fend for ourselves. And one day, my mom borrowed some money from a friend of hers who lived down the street. We asked our mom, can we get some of that money so that way we can do some laundry and um, get some food in the house? Her attitude was, no, go out and earn your own damn money and leave me alone. So I called the, the juvenile hall I was in. And I talked to a couple of the staff members who I was close to. And they basically told me not to do anything stupid and to think about it. And 
I would do the right thing. So I ended up uh, reporting my mother to child services. They came down that afternoon, saw the closet full with dirty clothes. There was no food in the house. My mom walked in when um, all this was going on. The guy introduced himself. My mom went storming out and he left. About 40 minutes later, my aunts came over, my cousins came over, and they started cleaning up the place. I asked them, you know, it took for this to happen for you guys to come over and help. My grandmother came in like 20 minutes later, basically said, you know, if you're always hungry, you know, you could always come over and ate. My grandma, every time I did, he yelled at me. What type of abuse was she to you guys? Was she just more emotional abuse or? More emotional and neglect. My younger sister would disappear for three or four days. She would stay at a friend's house. And she would come home, say hi, change the clothes, and she would leave again. And my mom really didn't pay much attention. The next day, after children's services showed up, they came, picked my sister up, and put her in foster care automatically. And they waited um, a month before they took me in. A month and a half before my 16th birthday. Where's your mom now? Like, what, what happened with your mom? Um, my mom passed. She passed 23 years ago. It got to the point where, like, after I got out of children's services, I moved back in with my mom because she needed the help. And my mom ended up moving in with her sister. And a few months later, her sister said, I can't do this anymore. Your mom's out of hand. So me and my sister took her in. It got to the point where the area that me and my sister lived in really wasn't safe. So we took the, the lock off the door onto the gate so my mom couldn't go out by herself. And my mother, she grabbed a steak knife, popped open the lock. My bedroom was right there so I could hear her leave. So I quickly threw on some pants, grabbed her. I'm like, Mom, come back inside. Let me get dressed and we'll go downtown. My mom didn't recognize me and she tried stabbing me with a, with a steak knife. What was her mental health? Did she have schizophrenic or bipolar? Or? Probably schizophrenic. It got to the point where after that happened, we had to put her in a home. And that's the last I saw of my mother. She passed away about four months later. I was 22. Did your mom always live off of um, government assistance? No, my mom was an RN. She worked at um, St. Mary's Hospital out in Long Beach. And when she was uh, helping out one of her patients, the patient turned around and hit my mom in the head. They ended up doing an MRI on my mother. And that's when they uh, found a brain tumor. Wow. And how did your how did your father pass away? He passed away August of 85. More than likely, he passed away of a heart attack. My dad worked for an aerospace company, and he worked a lot of crazy hours. And he had to go in for a physical. And when he went in, the doctors told him, you know, you had a heart attack. He didn't realize it. And about a month later, he went in for a triple bypass, and he passed away um, three months later. 
How old would your dad have been? He was 49, so my dad would have been 82 in, uh, in September. On previous episodes of Stand Up Speak Up, we heard horror stories about the McLaren Hall Children's Center in L.A. Known for poor living conditions, overcrowding, abusive discipline, and unqualified staff. I asked Scott about his experience there. McLaren Hall originally refused to take me because um, I have a disability. I have a neurofibromatosis. I have a tumor on the right side of my face. Neurofibroma causes small tumors to grow on my nerves. So the biggest one I have is on the right side of my face. I have little bumps on my arms, neck, chest, all over my body. It's affected my speech. It's affected my hearing, my eyesight, the way I walk. That's really hard to have as a child. Like You're already in an abusive home situation. You have... You know, a disability that, I mean, it, it must have caused people to, to stare and ask a lot of questions. Some kids didn't care. I was friends with them. Some people made fun of me. I had a couple of sisters that bullied me all the way up to until I was an adult. And how would they bully you? They would um, make fun of the way I look, the way I talk. I really had a hard problem with it. I look in the mirror, you know, and this is all I see. This is all I've seen for all my life. It's something that I knew that's always going to be there. And I kind of developed men the mentality uh, is really not caring. I'm going to make friends wherever I go. Some people are going to like me. Some people aren't. What would you say to all these kids that suffer from poorer body image. I mean, they're, they're beautiful, but they think they're ugly and they, they cut themselves and they are constantly stressed about it. What would you say to them? To love yourself. Nobody can change who you are. You got to change who you are first. You got to look in the mirror every day. And one thing a good friend taught me, you know, when uh, I first met him, was every day, you know, he gives himself a high five. No one else is around to give you yourself one. Give yourself one. Make yourself feel good. And I started doing it, and it's helped. That's the one thing my parents taught me when I was a kid was to, no matter what, always love yourself. You're always going to meet people who are rude and people who, who will just disrespect you. If you can sit there and respect yourself and love you for love yourself for who you are, then good things are going to happen. What was L.A. like to be a kid that could go to Disneyland by himself? I mean, what type of characters would you have met? I wish I had a little more structure from my mother, you know, my aunts, my uncles, and whoever. That didn't allow me to do, you know, going to Disneyland, not exploring farm and all that by myself. I think my, you know, my upbringing would have been better. I think um, kids need some foundation uh, and some structure. And I didn't have that. You know, my mother did her, her own thing. 
well, you know, my two sisters, you know, and kind of just told me to do whatever. Did people ever try to take advantage of you? Were were you vulnerable in the community because of being so much on your own? Yeah, that led to um, one incident. I was um, I was um, headed home. I was waiting for the bus because I didn't want to walk a mile um, to get home. So I was standing there waiting for the for the bus, and I started talking to a guy. And, you know, start talking about sports, whatever. I went inside McDonald's to use the restroom and the guy ended up uh, raping me. How old were you? Eleven. Did you ever tell anyone? Like, did you go to the authorities? Did you do anything? I didn't go to the authorities. I ended up talking about it in um group homes with the therapy over it. That, that must have been devastating. I mean, I, I don't know how... How, after all this happening to you, you wouldn't be setting things on fire? Well, you know, it was one of those things which, at that age, I didn't, you know, expect happening. It, it affected me. So your two sisters, they went into foster care as well? My oldest sister lived with my grandmother. And my younger sister was in foster care. And... She sat there. One of my cousins ended up taking um, custody of her. And how was your sister's lives? What are they doing now? How how did life turn out? My oldest sister has HIV and in the home because she can't really take care of herself. And how did she contact that? She went out. Her boyfriend, who she ended up having five kids with, um, Got her hooked to crystal meth. They ended up um, shooting up, and she um, got a my younger sister's homeless, hooked to drugs. And last I heard, she is um, pregnant and she has cancer. How old would your sisters be now? My younger sister, she will be thirty nine um, on the twenty second of this month, and my oldest sister will be 44 in August. Did your older sister lose custody of any of her kids? She lost custody of all her kids. Are they with the father or in the foster care system? The two older ones are on their own. The two other boys are, well, and, and, well. let me rephrase that. The, the other three are with family. One of them is actually graduating from high school this year, and he wants to go into the military. And the youngest one, who's out of control, they want to put her in foster care because they can't control her. She's, I think, 14. Do you get to be much of an uncle to them? Are you able to see them? or We talk. Me and the older, oldest one talks. It got to the point where last month, um, my sister was um, in bad shape. My oldest sister's not going to be around much longer because her health is really bad and she doesn't want to take her medication. So it's going to come to the point where, you know, I talked to her, uh, one of her older daughters, and I basically said, we got to talk about, you know, see and try to get your mom some life insurance because nobody in the family has money and when it comes time for your mom to pass, 
but we got to make sure that we have money there put aside to barrier and all that. I mean, that's really hard discussions for you to have. You've had your mom, your dad, your sister. Well, you know, I don't want to. And I had to borrow some money from a friend of mine to go out and see my sister because I know she's not going to be around much longer and kind of try to make amends for like, you know, our past, whatever. And, you know, I sat down and told her, you got to start to be better care of yourself. If not, you're not going to be around much longer. You're here in the hospital because you refuse to do everything people wanted you to do. You want to be around to see your grandchildren grow up. But the way it looks, that's not going to happen. Your younger sister, how does how does she survive on the streets? I don't know. You know, I've spoken to my sister once uh, in the past 20 years. My younger sister was a lab tech. She was making great money. She had a good home. She cheated on her husband and got hooked to drugs again. And everything went downhill from there. How did you even kind of survive and be able to be out all night? I basically kept to myself at all the times. I was open, willing to talk to basically anyone. One of the high schools I went to when I was uh, in the foster care system, I went to high school um, in South Central. And when I was uh, going to one of my classes, there was a gang fight. One guy hopped a fence, the other guy stopped turned around, pulled out a gun out of his jacket, let off uh, three shots. First bullet went into the building to the right of me. Second bullet grazed a kid's arm. The third bullet went into the building to the left of me. If I would have stepped into the building, the, the bullet would have hit me right in the head. In the foster system, how broken would you say it was for you on a scale of one to 10? I felt it was about two. Being in foster care, um, originally for me, was horrible. Because the first group home that I went to, all the hatchet boys in there, they had developmental problems. So I had to put up a sack. There was one kid who would um, come in early in the morning and take my radio. So he goes into his um, Michael Jackson tape. And the staff there really didn't care. Would you live with families or more in group homes? More group homes. Living with families, do you think it's better? Not exactly. One of the group homes I was in, when I was a part of the probation part of the system, it was uh, a couple who who took kids in. And they lived in Phil. But wouldn't the the caregiver or the social worker do a home visit to see that? Yeah, but once everything seems clean, you know, they had dogs. And when I was younger, I would get bitten, flea bites, like everywhere. And I would show this to them and, you know, they didn't care. Why wouldn't they care? What would they say to you? They were like, change your diet, change what you're eating, you know, don't hang out with dogs. And was that the general feeling among when you would talk to the other foster kids is that the foster system didn't really care? 
Um, a lot of times it was more of an out of sight, out of mind kind of mentality. That's why a lot of places, you know, had a hard time existing. One of the places I went to, they had foster homes, they had group homes, and then they had placements. One of the placements I went to, it was half GCS, which is Department of Children's Services. The other half was um, for um, kids who were, who were in the probation part of the system, which I was at the time. You know, so, and, we, you know, kids who were in foster care had to mingle with kids who were in probation. And all the time, that caused a lot of problems. What do you think the biggest vulnerability is for foster kids? I think one of the biggest problems is where do most of them go once they're 18? Once they're 18, they force uh, kids out on the street. And then once you're on the streets, how do you survive on the streets? A lot of people sit there, a lot of kids, especially girls, during the prostitution because, you know, they needed acceptance. And a lot of boys um, turn into drugs. If you have any type of smarts to you, you can either go to school, hang out with a good crowd, or the streets are going to eat you up. Did any of the governments help? Did the Clintons, did the Obamas, did the Bushes, did any of them try to make a difference in this area? I think Obama did a little, but I think the foster care system is worse now than what what it was 25 years ago when I was in it. I think there are way too many kids. And, you know, when you have kids having kids, it just makes the problem even worse. How do you feel about the planned parenthood and and Mike Pence trying to shut that down? I think it's wrong. I think planned parenthood is needed. It's very difficult for me because I'm a Canadian. So we are very liberal and I would hope that is something that our government would never consider. So for us, it's crazy that America is even considering not having pro-choice. But then I talk to Americans and they think we're crazy to be so pro-choice. I actually, I lived uh, in Toronto. I was homeless in Toronto for uh, a short while. I was staying with a friend of mine up here in cottage country for a little while. and. I was uncomfortable there. So I was homeless uh, in Toronto for a good year. My appendix ruptured when I was on the streets up there. And the ambulance drivers were on strike that year. My friends basically had to get me dressed to drag me to the hospital. The doctors told me, your appendix ruptured. We got to take it out. If not, you're going to die. But, you know, if it wasn't for me being in Toronto and, you know, them taking care of me, I wouldn't be here right now. Well, how did you find living on the Toronto streets? What was that like? I find Canadians really, really friendly. Like I told my wife, all my friends, if I could live anywhere else, I would probably want to live in Toronto. I would probably want to live in Canada. People are just friendly. I think the government treats people better. How would you compare the streets of L.A., Santa Monica to Toronto? I think the streets of um, L.A. are a thousand times worse because it's grittier and you can get sucked in into a lot more stuff. Where the streets of Toronto, I find people more friendly, caring, more outgoing. 
Were you able to find proper shelter in Toronto? I was living with friends for a while. We all became friends through um, the Red Victor Center, um, which is a, a homeless outreach center in, uh, in Toronto. And we helped and supported one another. And so how did you find your way out to Toronto? How old were you at the time? Early to mid-20s. Basically, after um, my mother died, I kind of gave up on life. I was homeless for a bit. And I decided to leave. Both of my sisters were older. They had their families. And there really wasn't much there left for me. So I decided just to leave. And then what made you decide to leave Toronto? Had to come back down. Had to take care of, you know, one of the few sisters and everything else. Did you never have, get involved with drugs or alcohol? I drank. I tried drugs, but never really got into anything. I mean, that's really amazing. You know, a lot of it had to do with my mom's side of the family, seeing what drugs did to them. I have a cousin who is like nine months younger than me, who got into drugs, got into gangs, and because of all that, he's on death row now out in California. On death row? Yeah. Do you ever correspond you know, with him? I should, but I don't. I don't know what to say to him. We grew up together. We did a lot of things together as kids. And as we got older, we went our separate ways. Now he's on death row and California is, you know, with your laws, they're going to try to start executing people faster. How long has he been on death row? He's been there for almost 20 years. And he, he will actually be um, 42 this June. Hearing about the trouble that ran in Scott's family really made me think how remarkable Scott is. I mean, drug and alcohol abuse is so common among those who grew up like this. So for Scott to have avoided that, grown up, gotten married, is amazing. I wanted to know more about his wife and how it all started. So I began with a simple question. How did they meet? We actually met on an online dating site. How was that experience of going online and putting yourself out there? It was different. I always told myself I was going to meet my wife in a different and unique way. My grandparents met in a church. My parents met in a bar. So it was only obvious to me that I would meet my um, wife in a different way. So we met on an online dating site, dated and stopped, started dating again, and we've been together ever since. How many years have you been together? She, um, this June, we will be together six years, and October will be, will be our three-year wedding anniversary. How did you feel about meeting her the first time with your neurofibatosis? Nervous. The first thing, you know, when people, you know, meet me, you know, that's the first thing, that's the first thing they are going to notice. They're going to look at me. Um, some women feel threatened by that, that they don't want to get into a relationship. Some women that I dated really didn't care. You know, it was all about the way I treated them and my attitude toward life. What would you say your attitude toward life is? Carefree. I'm open, honest. I do my best with what I have. And over the past few years, my wife has been a tremendous backbone on everything I've done. I got my 
GED. I've had more surgeries on my tumor, you know, which is going to be a constant thing um, uh, until I die. I know that. That's not going to change. And she's made me a better person. I'm thankful for that. What would she say she loves about you the most? Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. My willingness to help others with everything I've been through, I'm still willing to help others out, and she loves that. You know, it hasn't changed me. Some people would consider that with what I have, um, that I would be a shut-in. I wouldn't be out going to baseball games, going to concerts, and having fun. So do you see your wife as like an angel? My wife is probably the best thing I that, that has ever happened to me. You know, she's supportive. She's always there. She's always positive. And do you know her family very well? Is she close with her family? She's very close with her family. <laughs> we go down for Christmas every year. We drove down this year um, with our dog. And usually I I just go down for Christmas. I don't stay for New Year's. But since we drove down and she does all the driving, I was down there for New Year's, which was really fun. What was your wedding like? It was great. You know, it was it, it, it was something, honestly, I thought I would, I thought I would never get married. Especially like, you know, with the tumor that I would never find a woman to accept me for who I was. It was clear to me that, as Scott said, his wife was one of the best things that ever happened to him. And it really gives hope to others who may feel like there was no special person for them. After facing so many hardships in life, this was such a great turning point in his story. I wanted to hear from this incredible woman Scott had described 
and was thrilled when she agreed to speak to me. We're going to talk with Scott's wife, Krista, right after this. Stand Up, Speak Up is brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki, a brand dedicated to raising awareness around social issues. Our Hope for the Homeless collection showcases designs that focus on the daily struggles encountered by street youth, and our products are custom-made when you place an order. Together, we can make a difference. Start the conversation. Visit wearable-therapy-toki.com. You can win a free t-shirt just for leaving a comment on this episode of Stand Up, Speak Up. We start a new contest every month, so be sure to visit us online and leave a comment or review on the podcast. You could be sporting a free t-shirt from Wearable Therapy by Toki. I wanted to start with Krista right from the beginning of their romance. I wanted to hear it all from her perspective. So I was interested in his profile. Uh, he seemed like a really nice guy. Uh, you know, a lot of guys on online dating sites are, I don't know, they're just kind of creepy, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, but he seemed like a pretty solid guy. You know, I'm not going to lie. I asked my friends, you know, I showed them pictures. And I was like, you know, could you go out with a guy who has, uh, you know, the spatial uh, deformity and so forth? And I thought about it. and It's like, that's not really a good reason to not give someone uh, at least a chance, you know, to meet. So our first date, we went and had coffee, and we went to one of the museums, and it was a really nice first date, had a good time. We ended up going for drinks after the museum. Uh, by that point, it was late. I lived, or at the time, lived up in the Bronx, and he lived down in Manhattan. And if you're unfamiliar with New York, it's from where we were down in Manhattan. It was about a 45-minute train ride back to the Bronx. And he, you know, took the train back with me, walked me all the way home to make sure I got home safely. And then, you know, with no expectations, and then turned around and went right back to the city. And so that was right the way a sign that he was not your average guy, you know, that he was definitely a, a gentleman. He sounds so adorable. Like something like that yeah. goes so far for us. It was, you know, because it was late and it was, you know, a 20 minute walk from the train. Once, you know, I got off the train and he's like, there's no way I'm letting you walk home by yourself at you know midnight or whatever it was. When you first met him and you saw his, his facial deformity, what was your reaction? Um... I mean, I, you know, I, I had a pretty good poker face, so I definitely didn't have, I don't think I had a visible reaction, but it was certainly like, oh my gosh, you know, that it's clearly visible because sometimes you look at pictures and you're not quite sure what it will look like in reality. And I, you know, I was actually more uh, struck by, as we were out, people staring at him uh, as we were going to the museum and things like that. And I just couldn't imagine having to live with that pretty much your whole life and how you got, you know, how one could get used to that and still be comfortable, you know, going out in public uh, and, and things like that. Um, and I did wonder, it's like, well, you know, how, how would you kiss a guy like this? You know, how would, you know, things like that work? So it definitely crossed my mind, you know, as a potential issue. So when was your first kiss? That's a funny story. So just coincidentally, one of my best friends from college came to visit uh, maybe two or three weeks after Scott and I went on our first date. So she wanted to meet him. Um, so the three of us went out together to a bar and Scott was really cool with, you know, bringing my friend along and, and had, you know, we all had a good time. Uh, and then when we were leaving, uh, we went back to the train station, the three of us together, but we were getting on different trains uh, to go back to our respective homes. And right as my train pulled up, he just kind of out of nowhere, just kind of like pulled me over and just kissed me. And then, like, pushed me into the train. So it was super quick. It was really cute. And I was like, oh, wow, did that just happen? 
And my friend was, you know, being as a friend would, you know, laughing at me and giggling and things like that. So, yeah, the first kiss was pretty quick. Nothing, nothing too intense or, or anything like that, but more, again, cute, which is kind of Scott's style. How did your friends react or your family? How, how was it when, because Scott is unique in a lot of ways. I mean, he's experienced a lot of life more than any of us have with living on the street and having an abusive parent. And then, I mean, how did you, how did you introduce his whole character to your family and friends? Uh, well, with my friends, you know, he met them first and I, I let them know. I was like, look, I'm dating this guy. He has this condition called neurofibromycosis. He has a tumor on his face. It's very visible. Not because I thought they would care, but I just didn't want them to be taken off guard or surprised when they first saw him. So, you know, I think initial introductions went well. I think, and I told Scott this, but when he first met my friends, I think he was trying a little too hard. I think he was nervous. And he came across a little strong. Uh, he can be very loud and, and opinionated sometimes. So I, I think, you know, it's not that they didn't like him, but I think they're kind of, uh, you know, taken aback a little bit by his boisterousness, I suppose. But as he kind of got more comfortable with me and kind of realized that my friends were safe and they weren't going to make fun of them or anything and that I was going to be around, it became a much more inclusive kind of atmosphere, if that makes sense. Family was a little bit harder to win over. Not necessarily because of the facial features. My mom is definitely concerned about us having children and passing on you know, any sort of genetic defects. I think she was particularly concerned because uh, my sister's husband had uh, an unknown genetic uh, defect that was passed on to their daughter. Um, so she has some physical disabilities as well. Uh, so I think my mom was particularly concerned about what we would do in that regard. And she was also understandably concerned uh, because he was working at the time, but not in any kind of full-time capacity. So she was, you know, understandably worried about financial support and how we would pay our bills uh, and, and those kinds of things. How would you describe how a Scott looks? So if you're looking at a face, typically it's fairly symmetrical. Uh, you know, both sides are fairly even and, you know, they match each other on the left and right side. Uh, in Scott's case, on his right side, He's had a tumor growing there pretty much his whole life. And so, you know, it's just, so part of it, what you would look at would be the bulk of the tumor, um, you know, kind of a round kind of mass. Uh, but also the weight of the tumor being there for such a long time has also kind of, uh, just from gravity, has kind of pulled down the right side of his face. So, for example, his ear is a little bit lower on the right side because of that. His face is not as symmetrical, so the right side of his face looks longer uh, than the left side, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and even, you know, on his forehead, just the, the, again, the weight of it, the right side of his forehead, the hairline is actually a little bit further back on the right side. Um, not because the hairline is receding, but just because the skin has been pulled down over such a long time. So again, if you're just looking at him, you know, head on, uh, left side of his face looks like you would expect uh, any kind of face to look. Right side, not as symmetrical. It's kind of longer, uh, droopy might be a good way to put it, on the right side. And how about his upbringing? How did your family take to, um, his upbringing? His upbringing? <laughs> I wasn't incredibly forthcoming about it. Well, I told my sister from the get-go pretty much everything because I knew that she would be on my side, so to speak. And so she was fine with it. She thought he had an interesting story and you know, perseverance and that kind of stuff. Um, again, my parents were more concerned. Than, you know, I don't blame them. That's what parents do. Uh, I think they were concerned about 
you know, would he be a good father if he had children since he didn't really grow up in, in a very stable household? Would he have long-term, like, psychological effects down the road? But, you know, as I told them more and more about him and, and they got to know him better, I think they kind of realized that, uh, not that there's not any lingering issues, of course, I think there would have to be, but that they didn't seem to be um, kind of dominating his current life. Uh, he seems to have distanced himself from that as much as possible uh, in order to live uh, a fairly normal life at this point. When did you know that you loved him? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, <laughs> a couple of points. So right after we started dating, uh, well, maybe, I don't know, four months or so after we started dating, he had uh, a major surgery on uh, the facial tumor. And this was the first of like three or four at, at this point. And so I was kind of faced with this, you know, we've only been dating four months. I don't really have this huge commitment to this guy yet. Like what's kind of my role as he goes into surgery. And it kind of dawned on me that he doesn't have any family. I mean, he, he has really good friends that he would consider his family. So they would definitely be around, but he didn't have anyone to, you know, stay at the hospital with him and those kinds of things. I was like, well, I have to do that. Like, I can't imagine him or anyone for that matter going into the hospital for a major surgery and not having someone there waiting, you know, when you got out or not, you know, not having someone checking up on you and, and you know, checking with the surgeons and that kind of stuff. So I stuck around for the surgery. And that night I was about to leave and he kind of grabbed my hand and he says, please don't go. And so I ended up sleeping in the very <laughs> uncomfortable hospital chair uh, next to his bed. And so I kind of felt some of it then, but I wanted to be very sure that it wasn't just sympathy that I was feeling. So, you know, a month or two later, we were out again, having drinks, it's kind of our early dating life. And he walked away to go to the bathroom. And as he was walking away, I was just kind of looking at him and I was like, oh my gosh, like that, that was real feelings. That wasn't just, I feel sorry for this guy who's having surgery. It was, uh, you know, I really care about this guy and want to be there with him um, as he goes through uh, these different things. So a few months after, maybe, I don't know, six months or so after we'd gone on our first date, it kind of hit me. And what did you say to him? How did you approach saying, I love you? <laughs> well, he said it first, pretty early on, maybe, I don't know, six or eight weeks after we'd started dating. Uh, I, I, we laugh about it now, but my initial reaction was like, don't say that. You don't mean it. You don't know me well enough. And to put that into context, uh, a few months before I started dating Scott, I'd been in a relationship with another guy uh, that I thought was pretty serious, and I thought we would get married eventually and so forth, and it ended rather abruptly. So I was also a little suspicious of uh, quick I love yous, uh, if, if that makes sense. And so I said to him, you know, just hold on to that, uh, and we'll, we'll revisit this topic, you know, a little bit later. And he was totally cool with that. He, that didn't turn him off or, or, you know, make him feel bad or anything. And so, you know, when I had this feeling... A few months later, you know, I looked at him and, and I was like, and it was again real quick. I kind of looked over at him and I was like, I think I love you, but I don't want to talk about it yet. <laughs> he was like, okay. And then, you know, after that, I don't think it really came up again. It just at some point we started saying it to each other and it was just kind of commonly understood that that's where we both were uh, in, in our relationship. How was the proposal? How did he propose to you? Oh my gosh. So his best friend is, is uh, a lawyer back in New York, and he concocted this whole story uh, that his, his buddy was getting some sort of reward for doing, like, community service or something. I'm pretty gullible, so I was like, okay, that's fine. Uh, but he said that we had to dress up, it was his nice banquet, and so forth. And so I spent, like, 
three weeks or so texting back and forth with his friend's wife. What do I need to wear? You know what? And they all kind of played along. And we were going to meet his friends at Grand Central train station down in, in New York. And so we got there and, and we're standing there. We had to be there at six and we got there a little bit early. Uh, and I said to Scott, uh, I'm going to run over to the ATM and get some cash. And he like <laughs> he grabbed my arm and he's like, just wait a minute. And it was kind of grumpy. And I was like, okay, like, what's your problem? Little did I know he was about to propose to me. Uh, and so we're standing there. Uh, and then all of a sudden he just gets down on one knee and I was like, what are you doing? And he, he said something to the effect of, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to forget it now, but for something, you know, he loved me and he knew from the first day we met that he was going to marry me and all this kind of stuff. And, and would I marry him? And of course I said, yes. Uh, I also said, I'm going to kill you. Uh, but I, you know, <laughs> I added a yes in there as well. And then, you know, from out of the crowd, uh, it was kind of a blur, but out of the crowd came a bunch of our friends uh, who he had, again, coordinated this whole thing. Uh, so a bunch of our friends kind of came out of the crowd and had seen him, you know, propose. Um, and it was really, really special. Uh, and it, it was unexpected. Not that I, I mean, I figured that we would get married at some point, but the proposal at that time right there was, was unexpected, but really nice. Have you met Scott's family? The only one I've met in person, uh, I've met his two of his aunts. Um, one of them in West Virginia, we, we drove down from New York uh, a few years ago for Thanksgiving and spent the week with her. And then another aunt came down for our wedding uh, a couple of years ago, so I met her. Uh, I've talked to his sister a handful of times uh, on the phone, um, and we, we keep in touch pretty regularly through email and Facebook and stuff, um, but I haven't met her in person. What do you think about career? Like, what... what- what do you think he'd be really good at doing or what's kind of his career history been? You know, it, it's been very sporadic. Uh, it's been mostly either labor intensive stuff when he was younger, um, like construction and like road work and that kind of stuff. Since I've known him, he's worked with a liquidation company that handled stores going out of business. And this was back in New York. And so he handled like uh, advertising for them. So when that work was available, it was good work and he made pretty decent money. But, you know, it's just kind of depending on stores going on in business and that kind of thing. Uh, so not always very stable. What he would like to do, I think, what I, I also think he would be good at, he's, he's talked about a couple of things. Um, computers, he kind of has a natural knack for, um, fixing them, those kinds of things. I also think he would be a really good social worker, actually. You know, he has the experience to kind of know where kids would be coming from. The kids seem to just uh, identify with him in ways that I think are really cute. <laughs> Uh, and interesting. Just for example, uh, at one of his doctor's appointments, Scott and I were sitting in the waiting room and he and I were playing checkers on his iPad, you know, passing it back and forth. And this little girl, maybe two or three, saw us and she came up to Scott uh, and then just immediately crawled into his lap <laughs> and started trying to play checkers. So just those kinds of things. He, I don't know if it's it's the tumor or something he exudes, but kids like him, uh, which is, is really adorable. All of that is to say, I think he would be good working with kids in some capacity, maybe in social work or in the foster care system. Do you guys consider becoming foster parents? Uh, yeah, we have. Um, one, of, one of the issues that's been holding us up, like, you know, many things, is financial. Uh, and, you know, with him not working that much uh, or not having study work, part of the issue has been job stability for both of us. Uh, I don't know if he told you, I recently graduated with my doctorate a couple of years ago. Uh, and so have, for the last two years, I've been trying to find a permanent um, tenure track professor position. So, you know, we're definitely, that, I think that's what we want to do. We both want children. 
we've both agreed that having biological children might not be the best route to go. Um, so we've talked about definitely being foster parents or you know, doing fostering to adoption, uh, something like that. Originally, I was interviewing Scott for another episode about a children's home that he lived in when he was younger. But after I spoke with him, I realized that he was a really unique person with amazing life experiences and so much wisdom and knowledge um, about what life is like for a teen that faces a lot of difficulties and has a lot of struggles. And what I think amazed me even more about him is that he just seems so optimistic and positive about life and he didn't seem to kind of wallow in self-pity when I think he would have had a right to do that. I mean, I think that life dealt him some pretty difficult cards and I think he turned it around and he opened himself up to finding love and he met this amazing woman, Krista, and I think the love story just goes to show anyone out there who can't find that special someone, just keep looking. Like there is a soulmate for everyone and you just have to be open and receptive to it and be willing to take a chance on love. You got a lot tied up inside Got Jesus on your mind And a boy that just won't fight Baby, it's a grind And this your bitter life Where nothing just won't do The girl pleads The woman needs a wedding ring Deceiver, misleading humankind. Kind. 
for sticking around after the song and we usually like to give some bonus content so this is something that a friend sent me maybe a few months ago and I reread it and I thought this is a very empowering statement and I think it reflects Scott and and Krista and everyone out there who thinks you don't deserve love because everybody deserves to be loved and this is the poem Fuck it. You're not perfect. You have your issues. You've been broken. You've been uncertain and unsure. Sometimes you're difficult. Sometimes you don't know what the fuck you're feeling. But that doesn't change the fact that you deserve the type of love that will quiet the chaos within your soul. I just think that's awesome. I love the last line. That you deserve love that will quiet your soul. And I think... That's what love should do. Should not only bring out the best in you and make you a better person, but help you quiet everything that goes on in your head, all the self-talk. This is Carlos Stevens Tolstoy, and this is Stand Up, Speak Up. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.